There's an old cartoon that was published in the New Yorker magazine of a dog in front of a computer, and the caption says, quote, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. That might ring true for a lot of copywriters who write for clients in voices that don't quite match their own. Like our guest for the 223rd episode of the Copywriter Club podcast, Chris Collins, whose first assignment was writing content for a mommy blogger. In real life, Chris is an academic, doesn't have kids, and gravitates to philosophy, not family planning. We asked Chris how he transitioned from mommy blogger to SaaS, and in the process, he revealed a ton of tips about the ins and outs of cold pitching. But before we dive into Chris's story, this episode is brought to you by the Copywriter Accelerator. That's our program for copywriters who want to build a solid business foundation for everything that they do. Members of the Accelerator work through eight different modules together, and those modules cover topics like branding, pricing, client management, getting yourself in front of the right clients, and a lot more. If you've struggled to get transaction in your business, or you're making a change in the kinds of clients that you want to work with, the kind of work that you want to do, or uh, any other thing in your business, you simply want to get better at your processes and the services that you sell, you owe it to yourself to learn more at thecopywriteraccelerator.com. Let's jump in with a question about how Chris got started as a copywriter slash mommy blogger. My first gig was being a mommy blogger, and that wasn't necessarily where I wanted to be as a writer or where I wanted to start out, but it was just honestly the first gig that I got. And, you know, I had just been sort of thinking, well, maybe I can try my hand at writing online. You know, I'm a pretty good writer. Let's see how that'll go. And... The first client I found was just she ran like a sleep consultancy to help new moms and she was looking for for a blog writer and I sent her something and she really liked what I was doing. So that ended up being like my first gig for like the first six months. And it was the first time that I really that I really understood like the power of research, actually, because right off the bat, like I was writing on topics that I did not know anything about. I'm not a mom or dad. <laughs> I am not, I don't have kids. I don't have a ton of firsthand experience with kids, but what I could do was like research these topics that she would give me. She would want to write about like, why do kids wake up in the middle of the night? Or like, why, why is my kid a reluctant pooper? And, <laughs> you know, and, and so I, I would like dig into all these articles and like research sort of like the why behind this and write, I think pretty well-informed articles that, so she was really happy with the content. But I also knew that, like, I don't speak the the language of parents. Like, I don't, I'm not in that social circle. I don't know what parents talk about or are interested in. I'm just wondering, I don't know either. What do parents talk about? I don't know. I have uh, no idea. I don't know. I don't know. But what I did, what I did to make my articles sort of like, I guess, more relevant was search for phrases like potty training on Twitter or, you know, Facebook or whatever, or things like my kid won't poop. And just, I would just get all these posts and all of, it was like the first time I'd ever like searched for VOC data. And I really didn't know what I was doing, but I would just get all of these social posts where people were like, just here, I was reading what parents were saying in their own words about their kids' potty problems. And (laughs) so anyway, like, I think this is a lot, but you know, it ended up like being a really good first experience in doing 
VOC research. And, you know, writing about that topic wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do forever, but it did sort of lead me to like other, you know, other kinds of like content writing and copywriting that were kind of a better fit. Yeah. So before, before we jump to that stuff though, Chris, like in addition to the voice of customer research that you were doing, did you have to adjust your writing in any way to match the, the mom blogger voice or does that just come naturally out of the research that you were doing? That's a great question. I mean, it's been a while since I did it. I definitely felt like I I had to go for like I looked at a bunch of like other like mom blogs to sort of see like what their what their voice looked like and sounded like and I was trying to match that. So, I was definitely doing some some competitor scanning as well because the way I kind of would naturally write I think is a little bit less personality driven, a little bit better suited to like the SaaS world where I've kind of gravitated to. But yeah, like for sure, I had to like do some, some research just on kind of like, what, well, what, what should the voice of this kind of piece be? Like, what should that look like? And your, all the research that you did, was there anything that shocked you about children or about parenting that you're like, whoa, I did not know that? Well, it definitely reinforced my impression that parenting is really hard. Someone who is not currently a parent, I would go over to my my sister. So my sister has two kids and, you know, I would go over to her house and, you know, it was right about the time, like my niece was potty training and she would be having like exactly the kinds of issues that I was like writing about. And, you know, like, you know, they had tried like three day potty training without a ton of success. And, you know, they tried different things to like make it go smoothly. And I would just be like, you know, what's great for that? You know, you should try this. Mary would just like my sister. She was just like not having it. She was like, I'm not interested. I don't want to hear it. So yeah, I don't know. Nothing, nothing terribly shocking, I guess. How did this first gig then launch you into gig number two and into the point where you could start your own freelance business? Even as I was like writing for this client, I wasn't making much money doing this, like to be frank. I mean, I think that like by the time like that contract ended, I think, you know, I was making like less than $40 per post. So like not a lot, but I was very aware very early on of like what was possible in the world of copywriting. You know, I had been following this very podcast that we're on very early on. And I think I like was pretty clear that like I wanted to work for better clients and clients that I would be more interested in working for. So I, you know, I started to just try to find clients who were sort of like more of an ideal fit. I think for most of the first year, I was still on Upwork and trying to reach clients on Upwork. And I think it took me a long time to realize that was, you know, for me, not likely to be where I was going to find my best clients. But I did grab like that, that whole first year was a, a process of gradually finding clients who were going to be more in the tech space, clients who were going to pay me better than what I was currently making. So yeah, I think over the course of the year, I landed so this was over 2019, like I landed a couple of four figure projects, which at the time just was like a big mind blowing thing for me and sort of just helped me to see, oh, well, you can actually make some decent money doing this. And, you know, you can work on projects that are really fun. Can you talk about, can you talk about what you were doing before you got into copywriting, your background in education and philosophy and and how that background and lessons in philosophy have shown up in business. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, I can talk about that. <laughs> so, so I never ever thought that I would be doing copywriting at all. Although I think what's turned out to be the case has been it's been a really natural sort of coming full circle, you know, in terms of being something that like really leverages the writing and research skills that I developed early in my career. But yeah, I started my career going to grad school, like planning to be a philosophy professor. So the thing that jumps out at me the most from that experience was just that, you know, when I was in graduate school, it was just like very different right off the bat from anything I had done before. I mean, I remember like my very first seminar that I was in was just like we were reading like philosophy of language that was just at this really high level that I'd never like I'd never read anything like it before. I was having a hard time with a lot of it. And we had to write like like a seminar paper every single week on, you know, and, you know, the idea was like, you're going to come up with like some something original to say about what you've been reading. And for me, that was just like, I, I remember those first few weeks just like doing the reading and just sort of being like, like I got nothing. Like I would write a paragraph and delete it. I'd write a paragraph and delete it. I would just do that over and over again. But eventually, like, I just sort of like that first week, I remember, like, I knew I just had to get something down on paper. So I just wrote out my thoughts, kind of like edited them into something presentable, and brought them to class. And they weren't very good. but Like I got through it. And then over the course of the rest of the time that I was there, like, I just started to learn how important it is to just like get all your thoughts down first and then clean them up later. So it really taught me separating the ideation from the cleaning up and the criticism, which needs to come separately and, and being satisfied with like work that may not be like a hundred percent perfect. Like, you know, you can get your work to a place where like, it's, you know, it's to a, a, a really good point and then you can like iterate and improve it from there. So it was the first time I really had to ship work consistently and yeah. It was, <laughs> it wasn't easy for that's for sure. I don't think we've talked about philosophy on the podcast, at least not philosophical concepts or anything like that before. So I'm curious, like in addition to the writing exercise, you know, of getting ideas down on paper, editing, shipping, that kind of thing. Are there any ideas from the world of philosophy that you apply to your business or to copywriting? I would say that like there's sort of a mentality that I learned very like very early on that has sort of stuck with me which is just that and i think like a lot of people in academia not just in philosophy would sort of have learned this have, have learned this but in philosophy like when you write an article you are like it's a lot like law like you are like building an argument and you want it to be as strong as possible and so when you share something you've written with colleagues or friends in, in your department or whoever you just expect that people are just going to vigorously critique what you've written. Like they're looking for flaws in your argument, but it's coming from a place where they're like trying to help you. They're trying to like help you make your work better. So they're looking for issues with your writing that they can help you fix and, you know, address so that your overall argument will be as strong as possible. And so like pretty early on, I just learned like when I show something to anybody, like I can expect it to like be subjected to like pretty strict scrutiny. Like it's going to, like, it's going to come up, come under the microscope for sure. And so I just learned to be like really laser focused on quality. Like it just doesn't feel good to like, you know, share something that you haven't really thought through and get it torn up. And that definitely ha happened a few times when I was in grad school. 
And it taught me to just make what I was writing as strong as possible before I send it out the door. Then, you know, moving from from this, you know, you mentioned that you're on Upwork for a while, kind of struggling to find the kinds of clients that you really wanted to work with, that the prices that you were uh, happy with. What did you do that changed that in your business? I started pitching a lot. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's like that's pretty much the answer. I just sort of hit a hit a, an inflection point around the end of last year where I'd gotten like quite a few clients on Upwork, but like I could just tell that it was going to be real hard to break through to like an income level that I was going to be happy with on Upwork. I think I know that some people do use it to either supplement their income or like the, that there are like, you know, like enterprise jobs that you can get through there. So like, I don't want to like, you know, sort of poo poo it entirely, but I just sort of got to a point where I was like, I just need to be pitching more clients, you know, who are sort of like more aligned with like the kinds of ideal clients that I want to work with. And so that was just like, that's really honestly been a big focus for like this entire year has been building and improving my pitching system like over the course of the year. And like right now, I would say like most of the clients who are like best aligned with what I would consider like my ideal targets are are coming from cold pitches. I definitely want to talk more about pitching, but before that, just curious, why? what changed for you? Why did you choose not to become a philosophy professor? Oh, that's a good question. I, <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. I shouldn't say that on this podcast. Maybe we should edit that out. Let's just, let's. I think we should leave it. I don't, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> I mean, like, I think what I would say is like, academia is very rigorous. And I don't think it was ultimately like what I was meant to be doing with my life, to be to be perfectly honest. I think I got my degree and then I taught for a year after that. And I really loved the teaching side of philosophy. And like even now, like, you know, in my writing career, when I've done teaching in the think tank or whatever, like that's something I've really enjoyed. But I think there's also a side of academia where like it's really important to like con- continually publish like at a high level to be really successful. And that is increasingly important as academia moves more and more to this sort of arrangement where there's like fewer and fewer tenured faculty and more and more adjuncts. Like it's, it's become increasingly competitive. I just, I just knew I wasn't going to be able to have the kind of life that I wanted, that I would probably be taking on a ton of adjunct jobs if I stayed in academia and I just, it just wasn't the life that I wanted to have for myself. Cool. All right. Yeah. appreciate that honest answer. <laughs> Was it too honest? Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's know. good. Yeah. We, we like, we like honesty on this show. Okay. So back to the pitching, I, we have talked about pitching a bit on the show, but I, I'd like to hear more about the mindset around pitching because we know it works. We know there are systems you can use. You've used systems. You continue to improve your systems. But I also know there are many copywriters that we've worked with, too, that just struggled. They just won't pitch. Like, they just can't take that step to start pitching because there's some mindset block there that they have to work through. And sometimes they work through it. Sometimes they don't. So have you, did you experience that? Or did you just kind of bulldoze through and just, like, start pitching and just you didn't really have that problem. What was that like for you? Yeah, for sure. I was like, I was that person who would not pitch. That was like me for most of 2019. I made several kind of like false starts where I would like make lists of clients that or potential clients that I wanted to pitch. And I would like send one or two pitches. But what would always happen would be that 
I would spend far too much time on the pitch. I would send it. I wouldn't get a response. I would get discouraged and then I would stop. And I think that that's like that those kinds of mindset issues are like the kinds of things that a lot of copywriters run into. Like when you send a pitch, you put a lot of effort into it. If you're going to keep doing something, you want to get positive results. And, you know, you're not going to keep doing something if you're like investing a ton of effort and you're not getting anything back. So for me, I just knew I needed to get the, get pitches out the door consistently. And so what I ended up doing, and this was something that I learned from Diana Mayfield, was to template my pitches so that I didn't need to like spend a ton of time writing each one. So I created a templated sequence that just sort of like started with kind of an initial pitch that reached out to people, sort of said, hey, I've noticed this problem with your website messaging. You know, here's who, here's who I am. Here's how I can help. And just really lightly customized it, like, you know, with their name and their, like, maybe the name of their company. And then over time, I kind of like gradually added in more elaborate customizations. Like I had my VA, like research companies and write like a custom opening line that would like try to like draw people into the message and, you know, kind of get them hooked. And so that really like got me much better results because I broke through that, like, I can't get myself to send pitches. And I just started getting pitches out the door. And I remember the first week I sent 16, I think, and I got two responses, which was more than I had ever gotten off of any cold pitches. And, you know, the other key thing I think that was really important with that was just like putting them in like an automate, like running them through automation software so that follow-up would happen without like, without me kind of having to manage it. So what ended up happening was like all of like all of these touches would go out for my email and I, you know, I didn't have to like spend a ton of time managing the process and it just sort of happened on its own. And that worked really well for me. Like I've brought in several clients this year from that system that have turned into really good fits. So I think automating your cold pitch system is definitely something to look into, particularly if you're having trouble getting started because it just, you know, it takes the burden off of you to like, once you get it up and running, like it doesn't take a ton of effort to keep the system going. And then you're not in this kind of mindset block of like having to write pitches consistently and send them out consistently because the system's kind of doing it for you. So I'd love to dig into the numbers a little bit, but before uh, we, we talk about that, I mean, you know, 16 pitches sent two received, which feels really good, but that's also 14 rejections. So, you know, how do you deal with the mindset around rejection? Because I mean, you know, just like reaching out to somebody that somebody might be attracted to, you know, and you get rejection, that feels very personal. You're being rejected because of who you are, or maybe, you know, how you look or something like that. And it feels the same way when we get rejected in business. How, how did you make the shift to the point where, you know, 14 rejections doesn't feel uh, like a loss and the two, the, the two acceptances are the win? Well, so I think there's two things about it. Like when you are automating your sequence, you're really depersonalizing each pitch in a way because you haven't, you know, sat with each pitch individually and sort of invested your own time and effort um, into it beyond maybe like if you have taken a little bit of time to like customize an opening line or, you know, something like that. And that's, like I said, those are things I've worked with my VA to sort of have her help me manage. But the way it kind of goes for me is like I spend maybe an hour each week taking 
a set of leads and putting them into my automation software. And then like, they're going to get the first touch like this week, but that way I'm not like looking at any one particular lead and sort of feeling like I'm really invested in like, am I going to get a response or not? So there's that. And I think the other thing is like having a, like a follow-up sequence that's already planned makes you feel you're not necessarily worried if you don't get a response on the first email. Like I think a lot of people don't necessarily follow up that much. Like I know for sure, like in a, like in a B2B sales context, like 50% of sales sequences or 50% of like sales outreach stops after the initial email. So if like, if you can keep a sequence going with like multiple touches, you're, you're significantly increasing the, pro- the possibility that you'll get a response. And a lot of the leads that I've had come in have not come on the first email. They've come like on a first or second or third follow-up. So I think it's just sort of shifted my mindset a little bit around what a rejection means. Like it's not necessarily a no, it might just be like, not right now. Yeah. Okay. So let's, let's talk about numbers then in an ideal week, how many pitches would you send out? And then, you know, how, what does the follow-up sequence look like and what kind of responses would you maybe get? I think it really depends on where you are in your business. Okay, so let's let's say I don't have any clients and I want to get started. What should my pitch sequence or you know what should that look like versus and maybe we we look at somebody who's maybe got some clients and they're they're trying to up level a little bit. Like if you don't have any clients or like you're looking to get in like get people in the door now. I just think it makes sense to send a lot of pitches. I mean, and that was where I was when I started this experiment. I did not have much business going on at all. And like I said, I did 16 that first week. But for several weeks, I was sending 40 or 50, you know, 40 or 50 pitches a week. And by the end of June, like I had like a ridiculous number of sales calls, uh, like on my calendar, because like what was happening was these follow-ups were going out. And like, I was just starting to see like what had started out as a trickle sort of turning into like, more of a flood of responses by the time I was a couple months into running the sequence. I think though, what I have found is once, you know, you sort of like have like a steady calendar of, of work, it makes sense to dial it down a little bit. So I, right now I'm probably sending 10 pitches some week and some weeks I'm not sending any pitches because right now my calendar is full for the next several weeks. So I just don't have like an urgent need to be getting more pitches out the door. So I think it really depends on where you are in terms of just needing to get leads in the door. Okay. So if you send out 10, about how many would respond to say the first email versus the second versus the third and how long does your sequence actually go? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I mean, I'm pulling this up. So I've gotten with my sequence, I've got a 91% open rate, which I feel is pretty, I feel pretty happy about that. Yeah. Did you see 91%? Meaning, meaning that 91% of the prospects I've have opened at least one of the emails I've sent them. Okay. And then of, of all those just under 10, like 9.7% have gotten back to me and been like, yeah, like I'm interested, let's start a conversation. And so I don't have like stats on like exactly like how many I've closed at this point. But but I think those numbers are very achievable for anybody who like wants to try an experiment like this. I use reply.io, which is 
like I think a really good solution for something like this. How long is the sequence? Is it four emails, six emails? I started with just four. Like I just felt like I needed to like get it out the door. So I think that's another another side to it I would probably emphasize is just, you know, if you're if you're not pitching at all, I would say don't worry about getting it perfect. Like obviously you want it to be good, but like it's more important to just kind of like start getting it out the getting pitches out the door. Now my sequence I think is seven emails. And so that gives me like the first email and then like six touches over like several months, which I feel is getting pretty good results at this point. Which subject line is uh, converting the best right now? I'll tell you what didn't, I'll tell you what didn't convert. I had read somewhere that using emojis as subject lines would convert really well, which I thought, which, which I tried. And that may work for people in other verticals, maybe people who are like working with personal brands, you know, or something like that. But that completely fell flat with me, <laughs> like did not work. You know, I'm like trying to look at my data for you right now. Hang on. I, I would say like, I still, I still am getting like the best rates off of the first email, which is just, it's, it's just a very simple strategies and ideas for company like it's there's nothing super exciting about it but like it promises a benefit and like it gets you know a pretty high open rate other question can you just talk about the success i mean clearly like anyone listening can tell that you've had success with this it's working but can you talk about how much success you've had over the last year how your business has changed how even income wise it's changed and allowed you to go from basically leaving your full-time job and going full-time in your business. Can you talk about the impact that building a system like this has had on your business and life? I, I would say that like, like I said earlier this year, like I knew that I needed to do something to start getting more business in the door, you know, because it was just, it was obvious that like I was seeing a lot of people around me who were doing really well and like client acquisition was my big problem. And I, for, for several months, like I was just sending a lot of cold pitches and, you know, like just my income grew pretty steadily month over month, like all through the year. And yeah, like, I mean, I remember in, in March, like at the think tank, at the March of the copywriter club, like, I don't, I don't think I had any income in March, like actually, and just from brought in like 2k in May, like 5k in June. And like, it just sort of like kept growing from there. And then, yeah, I hit my first 10K month in October, which was a big milestone. And yeah. And then at the end of October, I left what was a full-time job and took my side hustle full-time. So yeah, so I guess it, it has been pretty impactful, I guess. Let's jump in here and talk about one or two of the things that have stood out to us. Uh, We've waited a little longer than we normally would to get talking about this because Chris was just talking about so much stuff in pitching. And, um, you know, maybe maybe that's where we should start uh, with the stuff that Chris is talking about pitching. Is there anything that really stands out to you about this, Kira, about Chris's approach uh, and how he's able to do so much pitching in so little time? Well, I think what stood out to me is that it's worked for Chris. I mean, he has taken his business from when he joined us in the think tank. He was working full time, didn't really have many copywriting projects, if any. And he built this pitching system 
and has been able to leave his full-time job is like really successful financially, has created this consistent revenue for himself and his business because of pitching. And I think pitching is one of those things that it's really scary and it's um, it's it feels hard to jump into it. But once you figure out a system and you kind of take like the personal side out of it and the rejection out of it, and you can just, you know, crank out 40 to 50 pitches a week like he was doing, or, you know, reduce that number to 10 a week consistently, it will transform your business. So I hope if anything, it's just proof that this stuff works. This is something that can work for everyone. And it's not like Chris is a unicorn. He's just tinkered and worked really hard to figure it out. Yeah. And I think when we talk about pitching or when we've talked with other guests about pitching, there's kind of these two different approaches. One is you go all in on personalization. Sometimes you know people are talking about how they spend a couple of hours doing research and personalizing the message and making sure that it's just right. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where it's almost unpersonal. It's, it's like the stuff that we see on LinkedIn all the time, You know, the people just pitching a service and just trying to connect with as many people as possible because you know that you know one out of a hundred or one out of 500 is going to hit. And Chris has kind of walked the line between the two in he's able to do a lot of pitches because of the system that he's built, but he's also adding personalization so that it feels just a little less impersonal, a little less automated. And that seems to have really worked for him. Yeah. And what else stood out is that he has built his pitching system so that he doesn't just email the people on his list one time. He, I think now at this point, he said he has seven emails in his sequence. So every dream client on that list is hearing from him seven times. And so I think just like thinking through it and again, taking the rejection out of it, not just sending one email and assuming it didn't work. I mean, so many people are busy and not in their inboxes today. It takes probably seven or 10 emails to get their attention anyway. So if you are going to build a system like that, like this, build in the follow-up sequence so you don't set yourself up for failure. Yeah, I think it's really important to do that because like you said, you know, with the rejection, especially when you spend a lot of time, you know, crafting the perfect pitch and you send out two or three and you keep getting rejected, that feels really personal. But when you're able to send out more, you land the project, you get the financial reward, and that kind of dopamine hit or you know the reward that you get can cover up a lot of that rejection. So if you've been trying pitching and it hasn't worked, keep going, you know, adjust your system, try different things, but just know that when people start saying yes, it makes up for all of that rejection that you've put yourself through and as you get better at it, ultimately you get to the kind of business where you actually don't have to pitch anymore because people start coming to you. You've just got so much success with so many clients and it and your business just starts to grow on its own. Yeah. And I know we talked, you know, Chris talked a little bit about the rejection side of it, but also it's just, it's not even rejection. It's just plain old, like people are busy. So um, I think it's just remembering that and not taking it personally, like this person's ignoring me. I know it takes people, it takes me about hearing from someone about five to six times before I'll take action, not because I'm not interested, but just because I don't like to spend time in my inbox. So I'm not in there. I avoid my inbox. So it will take me, you know, five to seven times. And it's, again, it's not because there's rejection involved or the lack of interest is there. It's just people are so busy and saturated and overwhelmed. So again, like it's not about, it's not about you. It's about the person you're pitching and 
doing them a favor by showing up consistently so that you can help them because they, there's a good chance they are interested. Yeah, you're right. Nobody wakes up in the morning uh, with the number one thing on their list. I'm going to respond to cold pitches today. You know, it's it, it does take it does take time <laughs> to break through and to really earn uh, the the response. And so, uh, yeah, Chris has done a lot there. I, I admire what he's built as far as his pitching system goes. One other thing that stood out to me in particular goes all the way back to the beginning of the interview, and that is the fact that Chris is a mommy blogger. And that sounds maybe a little funny or or whatever, but um, it, it's not really about the thing as much as I'm impressed with the fact that Chris wanted to be a writer, and so he just got started. And the first thing that came through was a project that wasn't necessarily a fit from the kind of stuff that he wanted to ultimately write. But as somebody who wants to be a writer, he knew he's got to write stuff. And so he might as well take this project and get started. And, you know, I can think back to my first writing project. It was for an MLM. I don't remember what the thing is that I wrote, but it got me started. It was the thing that kind of woke me up and said, yep, this is going to work and this is a possibility. And so for anybody who's at that starting point, you know, thinking I want to be a copywriter, what is my next step? The next step is to get started, find something to write, whether it's for yourself, whether it's for a potential client, whether it's for an actual client, whatever, just get started on something and then start moving towards the thing that you want to be. In addition to that, what uh, also stood out to me was just uh, what Chris shared about allowing peers and colleagues to poke holes in his argument. And I think his background as a PhD student and the rigorous training he had with just daily writing and, and really synthesizing ideas and and exposing himself to to that type of critique has made him such a strong writer. But I think more importantly, it's just given him the, the right attitude that we all need um, about feedback and, and not even just about being open to feedback and wanting your colleagues to really poke all the holes in the, in the argument you're making or in your sales page. But um, what I really like is kind of how he summed up that conversation with us and said he knows before he sends anything out the door to a client he wants it to be as strong as possible before people, you know, colleagues, clients poke holes in it. And I think it's really important because I know sometimes, especially when we're a newer copywriter, we feel like we want feedback from the client early on and we kind of want them to look at it. We even want their praise and approval, but we know that it's not quite final yet. It's a draft and we treat it like a draft. But with Chris's approach, and I think, you know, more experienced copywriters know that you you really don't share with the you really don't share with the client until you feel like it's 95% there and you give them really clear instructions about what's missing or what's needed next, but you don't share it when it's 50% done because it's con- called, you know, a draft. Yeah. And if you decide to share your draft with a client, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of pain. I think we've all probably been through that, but clients expect final work. Even if you tell them, Hey, this is just a draft or, Hey, I just want to get your feedback on ideas. If you're sharing ideas, literally share the idea, two lines that expresses the idea. Do not share, you know, full blown, full blown copy. Uh, Clients need to be pretty sophisticated to understand uh, the difference between a draft and, or a, a rough draft and a final draft. All right, let's go back to our interview with Chris and talk about why he left his job to freelance full-time. 
So let's talk a little bit about like what the the mindset and the decision process around leaving your almost full-time job were, because I know you wanted to, to get some things lined up. You're a little bit risk averse, you know, not wanting to just jump into this thing. So what had to happen to make that possible? I think that for me, I was very conscious of how the opportunities that I had had for my business because I had a stable income. Like during my first year, like, so like over 2019, like I wasn't making a lot of money as a copywriter yet, but like I had, you know, because I had a full-time job, I was able to invest in like memberships. I was able to come to uh, TCCRL this year, things like that. Like I could take advantage of opportunities to grow my business and just continue to invest in things that would help me move forward. And I was just, I think my big, my big thought process was just like, I don't want to do anything that's going to put me in a position where I'm going to compromise those opportunities, where I'm going to have to like, where, where I'll feel like I am not going to be able to bring enough money in to like support myself, much less invest in my business. So I just wanted to get to a place where I felt really comfortable with my lead generation and, you know, customer acquisition. And so working on cold pitching really, really helped a lot with that. What advice would you give to someone listening who is in a similar place that you were working full time, building the business on the side? What do you wish you had known or done differently that could have helped you? Or maybe what, I don't know, maybe you don't have to do anything differently. What would you recommend? So something that I, so something I would, something I did that I would tell people to definitely do and something that I like didn't do that I think people should do. I think one thing I did was just like very early on, like I started following, like I started following like the Copywriter Club podcast, for instance, like I started following people like Joanna Weeb and Joel Klecky and like all of these like copywriters who were kind of like at the top of the field. And I was just very aware of the possibilities for people who are ambitious and work hard and try to really set themselves apart in this field. So like I was thinking of it very early on as like, this is something that I want to like take seriously and do professionally. And so that was kind of like a mindset that I was like, that I had very early in, in my freelance career. I think one thing that like I didn't do that people should do is like kind of like what I was saying earlier. It took me a long time to, to like really get a pitching game off the ground. And I just think the easiest thing, like I know so many people struggle to get clients. And I think the easiest way to to get to to find those first clients, you know, that you're looking for is to is is to send cold pitches. I think it really will grow your business. And, you know, I think a lot of people are looking for like, like particularly early on, I know I was doing this, I think kind of looking for like, what's the easy way to get clients or what's the shortcut or like, how can I get clients the fastest way possible? Right. You know, I think, I think pitching is the shortcut. Like, I think that is how you can quickly connect with, with prospects and, and quickly grow your business. So I think that's, I think that's like the number one thing that I would say, like, you know, beginning people should probably focus on doing. And in addition to pitching, you know, are there other things that you have done that have, you know, helped you make leaps in your business? I know you mentioned that you had invested in a couple of courses type type things, but what else have you done that's just really helped you to? So what have I done? 
I think that building relationships has been really, really important. And that was something I didn't, I didn't appreciate the importance of early on at all. I thought I needed to upskill. Like I thought I needed to learn how to do, learn how to do copywriting. Right. I felt like I didn't know enough and I needed to like improve my skills. But what actually happened was in those communities, I ended up meeting a lot of uh, people who are still really good friends in the copywriting space. And those relationships have helped me to, to advance my career as much as anything else. They've just been, they've been good friends. They've been good sources of referrals and they've just helped me to learn a lot. So I think, you know, being in communities where you can build relationships, you know, particularly in communities where you're surrounded by people who are maybe, maybe a little bit ahead of you. And, you know, you can sort of start to think through, okay, well, like, what could your vision for your business look like, I think is, is really, really important. Yeah, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that jumps out to me. I'd love to hear more about what you've struggled with the most over the last year, and even how being in the think tank mastermind with such a smart group of copywriters, like you mentioned, has helped with those struggles, if, if that there's a clear connection with the struggles, and then how a support and a savvy group of copywriters in a mastermind have helped with that. Oh, I think like the think tank has been a complete game changer for me. Like I, where to begin <laughs> with the think tank? Well, let's, let's start with your struggle. Let's start with the struggles. What have you struggled with and how has it helped? Writing, writing can be a very solitary enterprise, right? It can, you can feel like, you know, because, you know, and I think that's compounded by, you know, this sort of like, social media saturated world that we're in where like people are always online sharing their successes and how things are going so great for them all the time. And you kind of know that's not really true, but like, that's what you're seeing in front of you. I, I think it's very easy as a writer to sort of like, feel like what you're going through is just something that you're going through. And just like, being in like, being in a community like the think tank helps you to understand that, you know, you're not going through uh, the struggles of being a writer, like on your own, that like other people are going through the same challenges. And not just that they're going through the same challenges, but that often being in a group of really smart copywriters, you know, you might not have the best solution for how to deal with, you know, whatever issue you're dealing with. Like if you're, if you're, facing a thorny issue with a client or like you're just like overwhelmed and you're not sure how to prioritize or like, you know, whatever it is, but someone else in the group like can give you an outside perspective and, you know, chances are they've been there and they can help you think things through. So I think both just being in a group with other people and also like getting their perspective and advice has been really helpful. And yeah. And I think just, Seeing what other people are doing is incredibly inspiring. I mean, we just had our retreat a couple of weeks ago and like, I just came away with like so many ideas for things that I want to do in my business going forward from the presentations that we heard. So it's, it's a really great source of inspiration for things you want to do in your business. Okay. What is one struggle that you've had over the last year? Cause it sounds like Chris, you've had so many wins, right? You've done really well and you've made this huge transition. So what has one struggle been for you as you've had these wins? Working on my mindset, like working on limiting beliefs, working on mindset traps. You're with yourself a lot 
as as a copywriter and your brain just has all kinds of sneaky ways of holding you back or telling you like you know you shouldn't you know do something or you know making excuses for you what i've found is that there've been like just just a lot of limiting beliefs that i've run into and i just need to continue to work on going forward Hey, Chris, I know we are almost out of time, but I, I want to ask you about this because I happen to know that you just deleted all of the social media apps off of your phone. Tell us why and you know what, what you're expecting to happen from that. I had already, so like I've already had like a pretty rigorous like social media blocking game going. I block my internet like almost completely on my computer from like when I go to bed to like 2 p.m. the next day. And like, that's been going on, like pretty much since I went like full-time as a copywriter. So like for almost a month now. And I just realized like there, I haven't even been on my phone to use those apps for like a couple weeks. Like there's no point in like having that, you know, potential distraction there anyway. So I hope that it will <laughs> remove a potential temptation to get sucked into these like distractions that can, you know, that can, that can sometimes pop up drain away productivity. That wraps up our interview with Chris. Before we sign off, let's talk about one or two more ideas that Chris mentioned. Yeah. So another thing that stood out to me uh, from you know what Chris was talking about is just um, when to invest. And I know we've talked over and over on the podcast about the things you can invest in and you know how you need to invest in networks and communities and you know the kinds of programs that maybe are best to invest in when. Uh, obviously, we're partial to our programs, but that doesn't mean that those are the only things out there. Um, but you know, Chris specifically mentioned you know that that when you're not bringing in enough money to afford something that that's just not the time to invest. And I think there's, it's, it's kind of got that bad bro marketer kind of vibe, you know, to tell people, Oh yeah, put it on your credit card because you're going to get a result. You're going to, you know, have all these results at the end. And um, that can happen for sure. It can happen, but you really shouldn't be making investments in anything, including yourself, unless you can afford it. And so it's much better, you know, to, you know, work a couple projects or to save up the money and then um, invest when you can afford something. Um, you know, Chris, Chris doesn't dabble. He's, uh, he's following people at the top of their game and, you know, he's just, he's doing some really smart things in his business. Okay. And then the last thing that, you know, I liked about what Chris said was, um, that he's doing this experiment with blocking social media. He's opting out entirely. And uh, that's maybe a little bit of a 180 because at one point he was experimenting with, you know, going live uh, a couple of times a week and, and being there. But I think he realized that it didn't resonate for him and it wasn't moving his business forward and maybe his clients weren't there. And so he's turned it off. And that's from a, a personal standpoint, a business standpoint. And maybe that's uh, something that we could all do just a little bit more. In fact, I know you've done some of that, uh, maybe not all, but you've blocked out quite a bit of social media from your life recently. I've reduced it. I can't safely say I blocked it. I, I could say I blocked LinkedIn just because I don't go into LinkedIn. I could say I blocked Twitter because I don't actively use Twitter as a tool. But, you know, I like pop in there just especially – in these crazy times just to see what the buzz is all about. Um, but I definitely have reduced my time on social media. I just have, I have a hard time blocking it completely or shutting down accounts. I haven't reached that level yet. So that will be like, that's the next level that I'm focused on. 
Yeah, I, I think I block by platform. I, you know, I never go into the Facebook feed. I only go into the Copywriter Club groups. It's the only place I even use Facebook, uh, which means when people even use Messenger with me, I just never see those messages because I just, I just don't do it. Uh, I see a little bit of Twitter, but like you, I've really tried to cut back, especially, especially recently. Um, but you know, even moving forward, it just, other than when I use it for business, it's a total time suck and someplace that I don't necessarily want to be. So we want to thank Chris Collins for joining us to talk about his business and how it's changed over the past couple of years. If you want to connect with Chris, you can find him at ChristopherCollins.co or simply do a Google search for Chris Collins Copywriter and you'll see his page at the top of the results. That's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. Our intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please, please visit iTunes to leave a review of the show. Or better yet, think of one person who could benefit from what you've heard and email them a link to this episode. To learn more about the Copywriter Accelerator, which if you're listening when we go live, closes to new members this week, go to the copywriter, thecopywriteraccelerator.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better, copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club.